We are in a series in the book of Ephesians. So, well, we're in a series that has actually gone beyond the book of Ephesians, but it's currently going through the book of Ephesians. But we're, we're tying together some themes. And um, the title of our series is Imagining the Kingdom. Um, and, and the subtitle for this message is Why Do I Keep Doing the Things I, That I Do? Why Do I Keep Doing the Things That I Do? Um, or I, I've even given it another optional title, which is, How Do We Stop Hating and Start Loving? You know, there you go, just put it down to the bottom line. How do we stop hating and start loving? And um, our text will be Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Now, um, for those that, that maybe haven't been here, what, I'm, what I often do and what I'm doing here is, you know, I, I think uh, it's common and you might be used to this, and it's fine, that in, in, in exegeting a text, we, we zero really close in, we zoom way in and examine the veins and the, the various aspects of the leaf and the stem. Um, but what I like to do, because I think we miss something when we do that, is, is I like to zoom way out and see the forest. Because sometimes I think we do miss the forest for the trees. And so in, in Ephesians, what I'm, what I'm attempting to do as we're working through it is see, what is this whole letter about? And, and not just so, get so focused on the individual parts that we forget to see what is Paul trying to accomplish. And, and so our series is, is really trying to look at what Paul is trying to accomplish. What, is he, what kind of change is he looking to take place in the members of the church in Ephesus and maybe even in us as, as we explore this? So um, while we'll be looking at particulars, we're going to keep putting it in the context of the bigger picture as, as we walk through it. Uh, If you would, read with me beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. And I'll be reading from the New International Version. um, And you can read from whichever text you have or follow along on the screen. Paul writes, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your heart, do not sin. I'm sorry, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen." And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, 
forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you speak afresh in our hearing by your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts that which you spoke when this letter was read to the church in Ephesus and in the various churches where it was read in that first hearing. And Lord, do a work in us that matches up to the intent of those words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Why do you follow Christ? Why did you come here this morning? Why, did you, why do you get involved in Bible studies? Why do you read and pray? No single answer can be given for all people, but for most, if we at least adjust for those who might answer, because my parents made me, the rest might be boiled down to this. Because of what you want. Because of your desires. It's the same answer one might offer for why they are a Republican or a Democrat. Or why people killed in the name of communism, or for that matter, capitalism, tyranny, or democracy. In each of those, it boils down to desires. We want a better world, a better existence, and we either believe it will be produced by, name any of the things I've just mentioned, including the kingdom of God, including our local church, or maybe this, there, and this might include some of you that are here this morning, we want a better world and we haven't yet found out how to get it. We're still searching. That would certainly draw us to a, very, a variety of things. But all of those boil down to our desires for a world that is better. This hope and longing for a better world is what has driven humans since time began. It answers the question, why religion? And it answers the question, why stomp out religion? Because for some, they can't have the better world until we get rid of all those people who believe stuff. But there's a catch. There's always a catch, isn't there? While desires are a wonderful part of our humanity, even responsible for all the good done in the world, they are also responsible for the evil. There's a dark side to desires. We have good desires, and I'm glad for that, and we have evil desires. Our desires not only lead us to seek the kingdom of God, and they do, they stand between us and the kingdom of God. We'll explore this under three headings today. The first is disordered desires, the second ordered desires, and the third ordered living. So disordered desires, ordered desires, and ordered living. We'll begin under that first heading. Uh, disordered desires. And if you would read with me afresh, verses 17 through 19. He says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of of greed. From the start of Ephesians to all the way up until chapter 4 and verse 16, where we left off last week, Paul has painted a glorious vision of a whole new world. One in which walls of hostility between humans have been broken down. 
One in which the people of God have, been, um, have made the love of Christ their own and walk in all the fullness of God. One in which the church has been given by God as a sacrificial gift to the world. This vision is, in some great sense, utopic in its own way. Where Paul goes next, to be honest with you, surprised me. It wasn't what I expected. It seemed more consistent, for my way of thinking, to jump from verse 16 to verse 25. How we got verse 17 through 24 in the middle of that, I wasn't quite sure. You see, if I go from verse 16 to 25, it, it, the argument is something like this. We are to pursue unity. Therefore, you need to stop lying and speak the truth. You need to stop, rec- uh, stop being angry and reconcile. You need to stop stealing and start contributing and on and on and on. That makes sense to me. But Paul knows that our desires stand between us and the kingdom of God. And so these verses stand between verse 16 and verse 25. Paul knows that we lie, we steal, we get angry because of our desires, our cravings, our greed. He knows what James said in his epistle when he says, ask the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You see, at the, at the heart of our lives of hostility and conflict, at our rage and our wrath, are our desires. And so if Paul's going to get to what needs to change, he's going to have to go right to the heart. Amen? The mantra of our age is to be authentic. Just be real. Be authentic. Some think that if they just do what they want and never do what they don't want or what any other authority beside self wants, that they will be authentic. Spoiler alert. Your evil desires are no more your own than are the good desires that God calls you to cultivate. Your evil desires are no more your own than are the good desires that God calls you to cultivate. They're not yours. No, no. You see, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, Paul explained our history. We were the walking dead, following the ruler of the authorities of this dark world, which was also described as gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. See, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires, is following the ruler of the authority of this dark world. They aren't your desires, they're his desires. He's just fooled you into thinking they're yours. Jesus made it clear. He said to the Jews that he was interacting with in that moment, he he said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Whose desires? Your father's, who happened to be the devil in that case. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If we want to stop killing one another, living in hostility toward one another, we have to stop lying, to be sure. But to stop lying, we have to stop desiring what the devil desires. We have to stop desiring the desires that lead us to lie. Who 
who's your daddy is a question you might hear a lot in our culture, which is kind of odd when you consider its origin, but that's beside the point. But at least one answer to that question is whoever it is that you follow their desires. You see, you're of your father, the devil, because you do what your father desires. And if we want to be children of God, we learn to do what our new father desires. Amen? As, as adopted children of God, and if we're going to live into that new identity, that's what we have to begin to think, is what does our father desire? And let's live in his desires. Jesus told those Jews that they were deceptive, even hateful, even murderous, because they were carrying out the desires of their father, the devil. Our evil desires are the desires of the devil. They are the driving force behind our hostility. Our father is the one whose desires we carry out. Lustful desires have led to murder throughout history, and on an individual level, that's pretty easy to see. But it's also true at a group level. Wars are fought because of greed. Wars are fought because of greed. Somebody's greed's involved every time, if not multiple people's greed. In verses 17 through 24, the first part of our text, first two-thirds really of our text, Paul isn't interrupting his call to unity with a list of other sins that we need to address. Well, you know... All your hostility and, and, and fighting with each other, that needs to stop. And You need to focus on the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Oh, wait, here's something else. No, it's not that. Rather, he's getting to the heart of what produces that hostility. Why? Why, I might wonder. You might wonder, and if not, I'll help you wonder. <laughs> Why? Are our evil desires what the devil desires? In other words, why does the devil want us to want these things? Well, in short, because he's a murderer. A little bit longer, we'd say he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Right? Now, more explanation might be helpful, so I'll give you just a little more. You see, I titled this heading, Disordered Desires, for a particular reason. They're disordered because they aim to slash at the very life-producing fabric of creation. In Genesis 1... Just think about Genesis 1. When God made the heavens and the earth, we are told what about them? That they were tohu vavohu. They were formless and void. That darkness covered the face of the deep. And, this, uh, and, and that, that, in that place, it was just utter lifelessness. It was chaos. It was destructed, destruction type of place. There, There's nothing alive in that moment. But then God said, but before we see God say, there's something else we read. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, the face of the deep. You see, the Spirit would take whatever God said and use it to turn chaos into order. And order would produce life. Notice what God says and then what the Spirit executes. Let there be light. But then what does He do? He separated the light from the darkness. Let there be a canopy, a vault, a separator, if you will, between the waters above and the waters below. What this was to put into effect by the Spirit is a separation that, that kept floods from covering the earth. Let, let the waters be gathered to one place. And then he separated, the Spirit separated dry land from the seas. Imagine what God could do with your desk. You know? <laughs> I mean, I just need him to come speak some things over my desk. It would be amazing. 
Next in the process, he creates plant life that reproduces according to its kind. This ordering will provide abundant food for the earth. Then he creates sea creatures. And, or before that, I skipped one. He sets the sun, moon, and stars to create the seasons that would be necessary for seed time and harvest, for life to exist, for food to be made. He creates sea creatures and, and sky creatures, uh, all to uh, pr- reproduce according to their kind. And, and again, this isn't about how he did it, but it's, it's about his ordering and separating of things that they would come about in an ordered way because that would produce life. He makes humans. Um, after he makes all the animals on the sixth day then from the ground, from the dust of the ground, then he goes to make humans, male and female, we read. And that male and female, that distinction, that separation, is directly connected to what? Life. Be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth. Order leads to life. Chaos leads back to death. The devil wants us to have disordered desires because that is how he kills, steals, and destroys. We've so imbibed his drink that we think those desires are our own, but they are not. You know, we, we're going to talk in a minute about God's holiness in, in His image of holiness. And we sang this morning about holy. God is holy. And, and the word holy actually means other. But it's only other because we've imbibed this, this disordered perspective, these desires that are so unholy that they destroy life. But when God created everything, that holy is what made life. That order is what made life. That way of God that is so distinct and different. That nature of God that drove everything toward order, that's holiness. And when God calls us to be holy as He is holy, He's calling us back to His way of doing things that produces life. Amen? Now, to be clear, and I think we must say, that arguments for order have been used historically to keep people oppressed. That is true. That is an evil, abusive use of false order. Slavery would be one example. There are many. But it doesn't change the fact of what God has done. True order is not oppressive. It is life-producing. Now, it will call us to suppress some wrong desires, see? It will say no to some things. It won't say yes to everything. Because it's life-producing. God created sexuality, male and female, one man, one woman. That produces life. One man, many women, well, that leads to chaos and death. History will inform us of that. Thank God for forgiving grace. But you see, following after our evil desires produces pain in our lives. We may well be forgiven, but oftentimes the pain doesn't go away. It may not even be our sins that have created it, but there's plenty of pain to go around in a world that has fallen. The devil desires these things because he wants to destroy us. As the therapist, M. Scott Peck, as his eight-year-old son put it, evil is live spelled backward. Evil is live spelled backward. And I think that gets really to the heart of what the enemy is trying to accomplish. When Paul says, hey, you Ephesians, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. I mean, there's a little bit of irony in that. Because they were Gentiles. Or at least, humanly speaking, they were Gentiles, right? But they're not anymore. That's his point. You can't live like those guys. Why? Because you're not them anymore. 
It's what you were, to be sure. But he's implying that they are no longer. Well, if they're no longer Gentiles, what does that make them? Israel. Which is what he said in chapter 2, verse 19. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but members of God's household. And what he said in chapter 3, verse 6, when he spoke about the mystery of Christ, that God has made the two one in Jesus Christ. We must no longer walk as Gentiles or the nations because we are not the nations. We are, as Paul put it to the Galatians, the Israel of God. Walking according to disordered desires is, is what we were. That's how we did live. That's how the world apart from God lives. In the futility of our thinking, he says, we were darkened in our understanding and separated from the life of God due to the hardening of our hearts. Now, how, how do hearts become hardened? How do hearts become hardened? Well, because as Paul explains in Romans chapter 1, because that what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So the next time somebody asks you, well, what about all the people in the world who haven't had a chance to know God? Well, they don't exist. Because God has made it plain to them. God has revealed himself. He has spoken to everybody in the world through his creation. Okay? For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Hearts are hardened when we reject what God has made plain. When our hearts are darkened, we walk blind. Our desires determine our direction. Our desires determine our direction. In verse 19, and I'm going to read this from the ESV, the English Standard Version here. It says, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Callous. The NIV says they've lost all sensitivity. That's good too. This refers to the fact that despite the pain inflicted by their pursuit of their desires, they seemingly don't feel the pain and continue to desire what causes the pain. We see this in the alcoholic and the addict who keeps falling off the wagon. He knows it destroys him. She knows it destroys her, and yet they continue to crave it. Callous. Sensuality, behavior, that, that, that's just simply behavior completely lacking in moral restraint, usually with the implication of sexual licentiousness, licentious behavior, extreme immorality. That, this is increasingly defining the culture in which we live. Now, it's not new under the sun. Certainly, the culture has been there plenty of times. Greedy, well, greedy. Now, that one's defined our culture for centuries, not new. It's at the heart of slavery, human trafficking, low wages, homelessness, corporations buying up residential real estate, which is escalating prices beyond anyone's ability to afford it. It drives our politics. Greed. If we walk according to evil desires, we will not love. We cannot love when we're following our evil desires because 
Love cannot be without moral boundaries because a disordered life leads to death. To love someone but to just not care that they walk off into that which will destroy their life is not love. Walking according to these disordered desires remains true of us until we put it off and put on a new self. That leads to our second and shorter heading, ordered desires. Verse 20. That, that what? That way of life where you're following after all your desires, where you're callous to the things of God and don't care. That, however, is not the way of life you learned, or, or more literally, that is not the way you learned Christ. When you heard about Him and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. For many today, the Christian faith is becoming disconnected from its origins. Christianity must not be held prisoner to a culture. That is to be sure. And at the same time, we have to be careful that when we're trying to free it from some cultural trappings, that we aren't enslaving it to some new cultural trappings. Because that can happen just as easily. Christianity has always been and will always remain a moral religion. A belief that right and wrong exist and certain behaviors are forbidden. Not just because that was the culture when in fact it never was the culture. The culture was always going in the other direction. The, the, the immorality we see today is not new. It isn't as if we haven't been here before. We've been here repeatedly. Things are forbidden in Scripture because God is holy. He is other. He is the tree of life. And everything that counters His holiness produces death. As believers, we must reorient our desires. And, and this is at the heart of discipleship. He says, you have not learned Christ this way. You have not learned emathete. You have not learned emathete. A disciple is a learner, a mathetes. You see the same root word. Okay, one's a verb, one's a noun, but it's the, the noun of the same cognate um, or verb of the same. See, a, a disciple is a learner. But a learner of what? Of a person. Not just a set of beliefs, but Christ. Of what it means to be human, to be true to what God has made us to be. The disciple is to learn to, how to live as God's adopted child. And we saw earlier in chapter 2, as I repeated, as I reminded you of earlier, that, that we, as, as sons of disobedience, as children of rage, we followed the desires of the devil. Disciples are made new in the attitude of their mind, their very desires, shedding disordered desires and putting on ordered desires. For the believer, it's like what an alcoholic or an addict learns when they finally decide to go to AA, and that's that your best thinking got you here. Your best thinking got you here, which is to say you better stop trying to live by your best thinking, and you better get some new ways of thinking. Amen? As humans, our best thinking got us to a world of violence and hostility. We need a new kind of thinking to get out of that violence and hostility. Discipleship involves learning to 
put off old desires, or as Paul tells Titus, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why? Because therein is the tree of life. That's what God is like. We want to be like God. He is life and life itself. We have to learn a whole new way of imagining the world. See, the problem we have is that we imagine that what we pursue, that when we pursue our evil desires, if we, if we live for ourselves, if we're authentic, as we like to think of it, that we'll find joy and peace. But it doesn't deliver. It just doesn't deliver. We, we have to imagine a world, a, a kingdom, in which putting others first is what brings joy and peace. Then we can begin to live in it. We must work at the level of desire. Haggai spoke of a day, the prophet Haggai in the Old Testament, he spoke of a day when God would once more shake the heaven, heavens and the earth. And it seems that what he will shake is their very desires, because the next verse says this, I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. You see, Jesus is the very one who is the desired of the nations, even though they don't realize it. They've been seeking after what will bring them peace, but what they really need to bring them peace is Christ. Amen? We have learned Christ. We are to walk in Christ, and more to the point, He in us. Being made new in the spirit or attitude of our mind is putting on a new self. Literally, it's putting on a new human, a new anthropos. You're to put on the new man, the, the new human. Not man as in male, but man as in human. Now this makes more sense, at least if you're familiar with kind of the broader storyline of the Bible. When you realize that in Hebrew, the, the, the name Adam is often, well, we, it, when we read Adam, that's just a transliteration of Adam. That's just putting our letters to spell out what their letters sounded like. Okay, And they did the same thing in Greek, but they also, at times, translated Adam. And when they translated, instead of transliterating Adam, it was anthropos, human. So God made a male and a female. We're going to name this one human, this one life. There you go, human and life. <laughs> Why? Because they represent all of humanity. I mean, I don't know if they called each other human in life. They probably didn't, just for the record. But they might have. I don't know. It's beside the point. She might have called him honey. I, you know, I don't know. But whatever it was, here's human and here's life. But Jesus comes and he's the new Adam, we're told. The new human. The representative human. Rather than the old rebellious one, he produces life. The new human is created to be like God. Sound familiar? Genesis 1, made in his image. In true righteousness and holiness. In true righteousness, or you know, certainly carries the flavor of justice with it as well. And holiness. The world seeks justice for good reasons. But the gospel of Jesus Christ offers true justice. It is a justice filled with mercy, not vengeance. Only the church can display it fully, and we must. Only the church can display it fully, and we must. 
The answer to communism is not capitalism, it's the church. The answer to capitalism is not communism, it's the church. Paul knows our desires stand between us and the kingdom that we long for. Keep getting in the way. Our greed. Greed drives our viewpoints on economics because we all want the economics that seems to benefit us in the moment the best. It's what we want. Why? Because we're greedy. Let's put that off and learn to be generous and share and think differently than the rest of the world about economics. It won't come by the power of the sword. Like Jesus told, I think it was Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, put that thing away. (laughs) You're missing the point. (laughs) Get rid of that. Paul knows our desires stand between us and the kingdom that, that we long for. Now that he's addressed us at the level of desires, he can get back to teaching us how to live in the kingdom. And that brings us to our final point, ordered living. Read with me in verse 25 afresh. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Why do we lie? Why do we steal? Why do we allow unwholesome talk to come out of our mouths? Why do we become bitter, filled with rage and anger? Why do we brawl and slander? Why do we hate our desires? Not all our desires, just our inordinate desires, our disordered desires. We would not be human if it weren't for our good desires. All the good done in the world has been accomplished by desire, ours, when it lines up with God's. However, our evil desires, the live spelled backward kind of desires, lead to lying, stealing, unwholesome talk, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and at the root of it all, the very heart of murder, malice, or hatred. Why do you think Paul might start with lying? Why is it at the front of the list? Maybe, maybe because truth-telling Recognition or admitting the truth about ourselves is the first essential and essential step in change. I mean, thank God, Christianity, it, it, it emphatically declares we are sinners. We are broken people that need God's grace. And, and if there is one scientifically provable doctrine of Christianity, it's the doctrine of indwelling sin. It's that of of, of really being born in sin. You don't have to teach children to, to lie, to deceive. You, you, they, they, it comes rather naturally to them. Every parent in the room is going, yep. <laughs> Whole parade of remember, memories are running through their head, right? <clears throat> Scott Peck, again, I, I mentioned earlier, titled his book, which tries to 
make a, at least a first step in trying to define human evil, evil from a psychiatric perspective, but he titles the book People of the Lie. Why? Because at the heart of evil is this lie, this deception that we continue to want to believe, especially about ourselves. Jesus described the devil as the father of lies and a murderer in the same breath. The first step to living in love and unity is truth-telling. And why must we? Because we're members of one body. Ongoing anger must be replaced by timely reconciliation. By the way, the text is not commanding you to be angry. Be angry and sin not. It's not a command to be angry. It's an assumption that you will be, and it calls you to reconcile quickly. F.F. Bruce describes well the point of verse 26 when he says, Anger can be prevented from degenerating into sin if a strict time limit is placed on it. Let reconciliation be effected before nightfall, if possible. In another place, Paul instructs, If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In other words, everything in your power to be peaceable. Now, that doesn't mean you pester the other person and they can't sleep until you finally get your way, and they give in, and, okay, we'll reconcile, because all they really want is sleep. That's not real either, so. Stealing must be replaced with working hard to help others, according to verse 29. See, most of us, I'm assuming, maybe I'm just clueless, and that's possible, but, and I might be, even though I'm right here, I think, but most of us aren't shoplifting, Most are not so hungry that we break into stores just to get food to live. Such events could evidence that others were stealing from us our daily bread, since they were receiving our daily bread and not distributing it to us. But that's not where most of us are in this culture. We're we're better at the more refined versions of stealing. Malachi talks about how we rob God by not returning to him the first part of our income in order to feed both those he has chosen to do the work of the gospel and the poor. Others may cheat on their taxes, or maybe you prefer to use the word fudge on your taxes, I don't know, because they resent that too much is taken and given to others. Paul says, stop it and work hard to voluntarily share more than that. Well, wait a minute. Well, what, He's really getting at your desires, isn't he? He's working on forming your desires in a very different way. Unwholesome speech is to be replaced with building others up for their benefit. And for all of you who never cuss, I'm proud of you. Uh, But this verse isn't just about word policing. It's about using our speech to benefit others, encouraging them, building them up. F.F. Bruce comments on verse 29. He says, by foul speech, or where our text says unwholesome speech in the NIV, by foul speech may be understood in this context not only obscene vulgarity, but slanderous and contemptuous talk. Any talk that works to the detriment of the persons addressed or of those who are spoken about. Well, seems like some of us might need to do a whole lot less talking. James tells us that the tongue is like the rudder of a ship directing the whole course of one's life. You see, if we can start with our speech and making it edifying and not to where it tears others down, then it'll pour over the rest of our life. When our speech builds others up, they are going to be blessed because of us. And then finally with that next one, uh, verses uh, 30 through 32, the transition is complete from living as children of 
uh, of rage, back in chapter 2, verse 3, to living as children of God, who has adopted us. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, same word for wrath in chapter 3, verse 2. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, wrath, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. That is a community that is walking in the uh, unity of the Spirit, in the bond, bound by peace, we might say. We pray, Father, forgive us our sins, even as we forgive those who have sinned against us. We must be a forgiving people, because we are a forgiven people. God is making us into a new people, His adopted family. All of these things are essential to no longer being children of rage or hostility. Just a few closing thoughts. You cannot hope for what you cannot imagine. You can only desire what you imagine will bring you joy. And if you imagine the fulfilling of your evil desires will bring you joy, you'll live in the pursuit of them no matter what doctrines you say you believe. When we can begin to imagine the kingdom of Christ with its justice and peace, its joy and love, replacing our evil desires with the desired of the nations, Jesus Christ, we'll be clothing ourselves in the new human. I think probably need to acknowledge that churches have been perpetrators of evil in the name of Christ too. People, whether leaders or the people in the congregation, are building their kingdom, not God's, all too often. Plenty of preachers. Some churches seem to exist for building the pastor's personal kingdom. Some people come to churches expecting the pastors to help them build theirs. We will strive to be neither of those, and I hope we succeed. Listen, our discipleship it, it works deeply, if it's true discipleship, at the level of our desires so that we might actually be changed in our living. In Jesus' name, we pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us and make us and form us into the new man, the new human, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. We give you praise.